This is the Author Archive podcast, and this conversation is happening in the morning of the 13th of June, 2022. And I've been reading a book called This Is Not Normal by William Davis. Will, when did you write this? Well, it was a collection of pieces that began uh, the day after the Brexit referendum of 23rd of June 2016, and they were published in the Guardian, the London Review of Books, uh, on my uh, blog at Goldsmiths College uh, and elsewhere. And it was a series of reflections as the years unfolded, uh, ending with the victory of Boris Johnson in December 2019. So it's a kind of a a, a sort of real-time snapshot of uh, a series of political and economic crises that unfolded over a kind of um, three-and-a-half-year period. The Collapse of Liberal Britain, it says on the front cover. Since you started, have your spirits become more optimistic? No, I mean, um, you know, I think that the uh, we're living today with the consequences of uh, the, uh, you know, of that referendum or the economic fallout. Uh, the, I mean, there's been news published only in the last few days about uh, quite how uh, dire Britain's economic um, prospects are. And... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's, I mean, you know, there's been there's been defeats for um, various projects which could be deemed to be authoritarian, populist, whichever terms you you wish to use along the way. But I think that we we continue to operate in a in a um, under conditions in which um, the institutions uh, on which liberalism. Uh, has been built and on which it depends um, over um, decades and, and even centuries have been discredited. And then they weren't discredited all at once in 2016. They were discredited quite slowly. Um, but I don't think that there's huge appetite uh, for a, a kind of return to a type of uh, what might be called normal um, liberal constitutional settlement. Um, of course, Boris Johnson is now deeply un- popular for various reasons that, that we, we're all familiar with. Um, but I think that the authority of parliament, of politics, of representative democracy has not suddenly been kind of uh, reasserted uh, in order to fill the vacuum. So there remains a kind of a, a vacuum of, of, of political legitimacy that Brexit it sought to, to, to fill in, in, in certain respects, but it filled it in a way that was erratic, that was often based on fantasies, that was um, kind of inattentive to consequences. We're now living with many of those consequences. Uh, the economic consequences are becoming plainer. Um, and I, so I haven't become more optimistic since that time. I think in some ways things have begun to move a lot more slowly, but not necessarily more uh, hopefully. I mean, as we speak, tomorrow the first uh, asylum seekers are supposed to go to uh, be flown to Rwanda. Uh, on this afternoon, there is a bill to change the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, it does seem as if these, these things, these particular happenings, are happening with increasing rapidity. And the likes of you and I can moan about it, can uh, put up our hands. Twitter can get exasperated with it. But it still goes on. Yeah, I think we... we I mean, what's slightly kind of extraordinary about the Johnston administration is in many ways, Priti Patel is one of the only um, kind of really sort of policy-oriented 
figures in the in, in the Johnson government. I mean, perhaps apart from Michael Gove. I mean, the rest just sort of seem to be kind of content with the kind of general flimflam of, of Westminster and, and culture war and social media and this sort of thing. Whereas obviously Priti Patel has, um, there's also the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, policing bill that went through, um, to, uh, which um, uh, was hugely protested about um, changing the law on the right to protest. Um, so there's been a series of these sorts of, these sorts of measures introduced and there does seem to be a, a kind of a, um, a way of doing politics that I think Johnson has worked for Johnson on previous occasions, but the, the, it's a way of doing politics which attempts to kind of position the governing party as uh, at loggerheads with, um, well, with, 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 with what they like to call kind of activist lawyers. The idea being that those who um, are, are charged with um, uh, applying and upholding the law um, uh, are in some ways motivated by their own um, political agenda. Now that is a, a kind of clear populist tactic in the in the in the literal or textbook sense of populism, in which there is this notion of um, there being a, a kind of a liberal elite that is um, that is lying to and is 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 ripping off the kind of good ordinary normal majority. I think where that has clearly broken down is I don't think that 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 vision of a of a good normal moral majority really works um for at least for this government at the moment i don't think that that that, that coalition really makes any sense now um but it's not clear what a what a kind of uh, a, a, a a potential coalition might look like instead so uh, yeah they've got a way of doing politics it works for johnson it helps him remain in power he surrounds himself with very mediocre people but who help him remain in power um people like nadine doris and others um, I mean, this, I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to exaggerate because I, I, I mean, I don't think we're in, in, in any situation that could be described as totalitarian or anything like that. I think there are some authoritarian tendencies, but it, it does remind one of, there's the famous line in Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, where she talks about um, that the, there being a kind of key feature of uh, those with totalitarian ambitions, which is that they first of all surround themselves with 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 mediocrities who represent less of a threat to them. Now, I'm not suggesting that Boris Johnson has kind of um, fascist or Stalinist or totalitarian uh, ambitions or potential, but I think there is something that um, uh, allows this kind of politics to 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 prosper is the kind of absence of um, uh, of, of 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 serious. Um, and able people in key positions. Uh, and in the end, what happens is that the kind of resistance tends to come from um, sort of, you know, certain types of um, activists or backbenchers or figures in the media and this sort of stuff. But you, you lack a kind of sustained um, uh, resistance to it. And that there does there seems to be a sort of sneering attitude. Um, I mean, I've worked in radio, TV, books, etc. for for years, um, and Nadine Doris seems to sneer at all the things I love and gets away with it. Pretty Patel has a kind of sneering attitude, and um, I mean, does this happen because it's supported by certain factions of the press? Do you think? I think there's a long-standing. Um, Forms of cultural resentment that um, that is sometimes manipulated quite um, cynically. I think that one thing that we've become aware of, not just in the, in Britain, but this is the case in the United States. It's more pronounced in the United States in lots of ways, um, but it's it's very acute in France. But which is the divide 
around, broadly speaking, the um, those who have gone to university uh, and those who haven't, those who go to university for various reasons tend to move towards cities like London. Um, those who don't go to university tend to remain um, more um, sort of geographically less less mobile. I mean, these are obviously kind of uh, types rather than sort of descriptions that fit everybody. But now that has clearly stored up certain forms of cultural and political resentment that have been brewing for quite a long time. I mean, I, I think they 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 tend to, to um, be submerged during periods of economic prosperity, as was the case under um, uh, during the kind of Blair and, and New Labour era, they tended to remain relatively submerged um, during the uh, era of, of, of the post-2008 era of, of austerity and so on. But they really clearly flared up all over the world in, in, in recent years. Um, and that sneering is partly, I think, a, you know, a, sometimes it's a genuine um, sense of, 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 of frustration and, and anger, but it's also partly trying to kind of whip something up. And it's the lines are already um, in, in place. One of the key roles that things like the Daily Mail play in, in Britain or Fox News plays in the United States is to have all of the lines um, scripted in advance. So um, Johnson or Oliver Dowden or um, Nadine Doris or any of the sort of people who, who, who want to kind of drop the odd little sort of tidbit of, of culture war, of, of kind of anti-university, uh, anti uh, metropolitan um, rhetoric into public life. The, the 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 lines are already scripted because they've been circulating around the Daily Mail, uh, the Daily Express, and I think increasingly the Telegraph and sometimes even the Times um, have, have have played some of these lines. So the lines already exist, and I think that's has has proved to be a, a crucial um, uh, kind of coalition, political coalition. Uh, and you saw it with Trump and, and Fox News, or before that, actually, with Sarah Palin and Fox News. I mean, Palin was the kind of uh, when the kind of dam broke in, in the United States um, or people who know what to say because it's already been uh, it's already been tried out in a way. Um, so that's, you know, these, these sort of dog whistles, these these these, these enemies already exist uh, for, for this kind of politics. Um, but it seems to be based on prejudice and gut feeling. Um uh, and some of it on just pure ignorance. And it, it seems that we don't mind being told things by people who have not a clue what they're talking about. Well, I think people do mind. People mind passionately and, and, and deeply. And I think that um, we've seen in Britain in the last um, five years um, since the referendum, nearly six, no, six years since the referendum. But, but I, I think, you know, the, the, the movement... Um, for um, uh, against Brexit really kind of acquired its sort of cultural identity in the years that followed with some of those anti-Brexit marches and this sort of thing and various kind of podcasts and publications and, and so on set up and you still occasionally see European flags around and this sort of thing. I think people clearly do mind and, and it should, we shouldn't underestimate how strongly felt some of those um, anti-Brexit, anti-Johnson uh, movements are on the, amongst the, around the kind of liberal centre uh, and there's a lot of people, I meet them, uh, people who are not, you know, probably that into politics, but have become very, very angry about some of these these issues and about the lies and so on. And I think the, the terrible mistake that Johnson has made for his own career is to add to that uh, a group of people who previously were quite sympathetic to Brexit, but are obviously absolutely furious with um, the way he's behaved in relation to COVID and, and parties and lockdowns and so on. Um, in terms of this not, it's not caring, I mean, I think that yeah it's 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 not clear exactly sort of 
where this originated. I mean, some people would go back and say that, um, you know, politicians have, have been considered to be liars. Journalists have been considered to be liars for a lot longer than this style of politics has has been at work in, in Britain. I mean, there's been these, these um, surveys done on trust um, that um, over, over decades that show that there's been this kind of precipitous fall in the trust that is placed in journalists and politicians um, in uh, democracies such as Britain's uh, over over many, many years. Um, there's a, a, a piece in my book, um, which was originally a long read in The Guardian on, on, on why we stopped trusting elites and the kind of this kind of fatal thing that happens to liberal democracies when the figures that really are, the, are sort of key conduits for how public life is conducted and what allows public life to, to appear credible um, and to, to appear maybe not sort of, you know, people might not be sympathetic to it, they might not, not think that it's kind of decent and, and so on, but at least they consider that broadly speaking, it's, it's, it's offering them a, uh, a, a, a sort of recognisable and a, a, a broadly credible uh, sort of picture of what's actually going on rather than a kind of a sham or a, or a, or a conspiracy. Um, and I think that fell apart, particularly actually over the 1990s and early 2000s, I think that um, the, the rise of spin uh, under New Labour was, 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 was very damaging. The, the, you know, the, the way in which you bring journalists kind of inside yeah. the, down the street in order to constantly sort of wage this kind of, um, sort of war of, 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 against the press and attempts to manipulate the press. Of course, the press are far from innocent and all that. The Iraq war, absolutely deadly in terms of um, the, 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 the trust in, in public figures. But then one of the things I point out in that piece is that from about sort of 2008 onwards, you have a series of these kind of scandals, which, which weren't just sort of, you know, the kind of Tories taking kind of backhanders or being found with their trousers down in the way that happened with the sleeves under John Major, but kind of systematic scandals, things like libel fixing, things like, you know, Volkswagen um, uh, yeah, fixing the emissions of, 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 of their vehicles, things like um, sort of, you know, uh, Tesco's manipulating, being found to manipulate their profits. Uh, then you had things like the hacking scandal, uh, the phone hacking scandal, of, of, of which had engulfed Downing Street and this sort of thing. You had crucially, really big one was MPs expensive scandal now if you put all of those things together i think you end up with a, a sizable pr- proportion of, of of the electorate who not unreasonably believe that the people who make up kind of the elites in london no matter whether they're politicians or journalists or judges or whatever it might be are actually uh, kind of become sort of fundamentally dishonest and i think that opens the door for a style of politics in which people can say one thing and do another or say one thing and say something completely different the next day. And, in, and people go, yes, that person's a liar, but they don't think that person's uniquely a liar. They think that person is sort of uh, kind of fairly typical uh, of something that in the past was kind of covered up, but now appears to, to basically just be the kind of status quo. Yeah, and you call your book, This Is Not Normal. But um, hearing you speak, it's as if we are tolerating it as normal. My, inside my gut, I'm going, we've got to stop. This is not normal. But mm. we tend to assume that it is. Well, we, I mean, we, you know, we, we also, I mean, um, we, we, we've become accustomed to it. That's what you mean. I think that's yes. true. And I think that is, that is um, worrying and it is also quite exhausting. And I think people, you know, people, one of the things that happens with, with this style of politics and people found it, with the Trump administration is that he is very, very exhausting. I mean, there's a limit to, I mean, you know, I, I wrote these, these pieces. I mean, I, I, the book is about whatever sort of 70,000 words. Um, uh, and, 
a lot of that consists of pieces that I that I wrote along the way. I found actually since Johnson's been prime minister, I found it almost impossible to kind of you know since he won the twenty nineteen election, I, my my ability to write about him and who he is and what he represents has has really waned because after a while you become sort of worn down by it, yes. and it's you run out of sort of new things to say because we know he's a liar, we know he's an egotist, we know he's unsuited for any kind of public office. But so how many way different ways are there way of saying that? Um, and I think you know, many people have found this. And I think one of the things people found in the United States with Trump was just this, you know, the, the amount of media attention that these people have are able to kind of suck up and the amount of outrage they're able to provoke. And they seem to sort of be kind of, they, they seem inexhaustible themselves. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about Trump was he was, he was quite, so he, he's quite old, you know, he was, um, he just, but he just seemed to have a kind of indefatigability about him. Even when he got COVID, I mean, he was sort of recovered straight away and, um, and um, there is this sort of difficulty of, of sort of, you know, whether you remain outraged or do you turn away or do you sort of put your trust in or your, your energies into some sort of, um, you know, some particular movement or, you know, there are these things like the good law project that have been set up to, to try to kind of uh, around various sort of, you know, um, uh, legal campaigns in various areas to, around things like trying to expose corruption in procurement practices and that sort of thing. So it's very difficult to know how to both retain a sense of 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 of, of, of critical um, uh, attention to this and not not to sort of turn oneself away from it and to switch off, but not to just be kind of relentlessly sort of worn down and, and exhausted by it because it's you know I think that um, anger is important, but but it also can be very um, tiring. I wonder, do you sense that there is um, an undercurrent? Uh, I was at a festival yesterday. George Monbiot was there uh, saying what George Monbiot says. But surely um, in order to defeat the climate change catastrophe, which could well hit our species, we do Mm. all have to we do have to work together rather than fighting um, about what seems in the bigger scheme of things. tiny things and Amanda Anucci was there I mean you could say that some of um, he he pointed uh, a searchlight at what was happening uh, in the thick of it with the Labour administration Mm. but I did sense that amongst the folks there there was a dissatisfaction uh, that this is not normal and they want to do something about it yeah I mean I think the difficulty is that you know we 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 um if you think of how New Labour came to power uh, in 1997, um, which was on the back of um, several defeats to the Conservatives, um, a sense of of that um, of, of, of sort of deep pessimism that had befallen the Labour Party in the early 90s, and then there was a sort of um, a, a kind of you know a, another heave, and that heave was based around. Um, very strict control of, of 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 the party, very strict control of media messaging, and also, you know, more to their credit, um, really sort of elite technical policy development and implementation. You know, an amazing kind of uh, sort of intellectual um, policy alliance of various people across think tanks, universities the party, trade unions, to try to develop a whole new set of policies that might actually alleviate some Britain's um, gravest social problems. And you had things like SureStart that came out of, you had things that, you know, for better or worse, things like tax credits and and, and this sort of thing, and and, and great investment in in the public realm of of, of hospitals and schools in particular. Um, So now that was a, a, a huge concerted effort, but it was one that didn't really rest on 
ideology or any great enthusiasm for democracy, to be, to be blunt about it. That's not to say that it didn't have democratic legitimacy in its own way, but it wasn't one that was founded on the sort of will of the people. It was really a kind of a party that was on its, on its knees, lifting itself up to, to do some, you know, remarkable and some good, some less good things. Um, I think the difficulty at the moment is that, you know, something like climate change requires, in some ways, a similar sort of I mean, te- the word technocratic often has a has a sort of pejorative te- connotations of being sort of anti-democratic in some ways. But I think that on some levels, the response to climate change does require some technocratic uh, innovations. And in some respects, it probably requires some anti-democratic innovations. I mean, that's the, the, the brute reality of it, in the sense that things like net zero, um, which, of course, people like Nigel Farage and people, various conservatives like John Redwood and Steve Baker and these sorts of people would love to start to use net zero as a way of trying to mobilize a new kind of populist uh, uprising. Uh, and that really is going to be the test for when, you know, what point does there was, does a form of nationalism or form of populism start to really kind of take control all over the Conservative Party all over again will be, it will be around an anti-net zero uh, movement. Um, I think the difficulty is that the conditions are not really in place with this level of, 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 of political turmoil that afflicts public life in general, this level of, 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 of distrust in the media, in the institutions of government, uh, but also this economic stagnation that we are now in makes the forms of, 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 of technocratic and um, elite-led policy development that Labour did really in a, in a whatever you think of them. It was, it was a kind of a, a textbook example of a, of a very, very policy-led, um, evidence-based um, uh, policy movement of the late 90s and early 2000s. In some ways, you know, it would, in some ways, figures such as kind of pre-Iraq Tony Blair and Gordon Brown are the sorts of individuals that I think that something like climate change uh, kind of calls for some of those figures to uh, put that kind of energy into the sorts of solutions that are needed. Um, those individuals may or may not be around at the moment, but also they don't have very much public and political credibility. I mean, you know, Keir Starmer might be the next, you know, odds on to become the next prime minister, but he will be facing an extremely difficult situation with an economy that is barely growing, with remaining very, very deep political fractures all over the place. So I'm sorry to sound pessimistic, but I think that you're right that we need uh, consensus, but I think that consensus is 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 fleeting at the moment, and I don't think that there are various forces in the media and in public life that that are bitterly contesting in various ways. Now, you know, of course that doesn't shouldn't put us off, but I think that um, you know we shouldn't we should also shouldn't be naive about how difficult it, it is. You're right that concerted efforts are needed, and I think there are you know there are very there are wide maybe not consensuses, but there are there is majority support for various types of. Of, of investment in, in 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 ecological and social goods, but I think that those majorities are being thwarted in in lots of ways by the um, inadequate nature of, of 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 representative democracy in the UK. I mean, I think that you know the British Constitution has been found sorely wanting um, over the last um, well, really over decades. But I think that you know Brexit, driven by a mixture of of, of, of sort of um, the, the rage of certain wealth elites towards not getting what they wanted, uh, the rage, the cultural rage of certain elderly voters of feeling kind of ignored and so on, um, uh, mixed with a sort of um, huge political and democratic enthusiasm for suddenly having a vote where every vote counts, where most votes do not count in a first-past-the-post system. These sorts of things led 
to this kind of completely unnecessary and ultimately socially and economically and politically destructive event, in my view. Um, no, just... it, um, it, you know, I think that what we needed was the forms of, 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 of democratic and constitutional reform that some people, Anthony Barnett, have been arguing for since the 1980s, and we didn't get it. That that um, splendid answer you you use the term the UK. I've just come back from Scotland. As soon as you go across the border, you notice very simple things like there's a lot more uh, wind turbines. Right. The, the the attitude to energy in Scotland seems very different to the attitude in England. So the things of which we speak are they particularly English? I think, I mean, clearly, I mean, English identity is a problem. And as I said, I mean, I mentioned Anthony Barnett. I mean, he's, he's been working on this for, for decades um, uh, in terms of the sort of what, what does one do about, about England um, and the fact that England doesn't have a kind of this, 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 this identity. It is the dominant force within the United Kingdom, and yet it has no uh, means of speaking and expressing itself in any constitutional fashion. Um, and you know that this is a problem that would eventually arise. And of course, um, I mean, the, the the vote for Brexit was um, largely a an English. I mean, it, there were large parts of, of, of Wales also voted for Brexit, but uh, it was by and large uh, a, an expression of of, of, of English um, identity uh, and and a, a kind of um, I suppose a sort of nostalgia for. For a version of Britain that was that is primarily English, um, and uh, that means that uh, yes, I think that um, it, England has struggled to speak certain truths to itself over the years. I think that there are forms of of of, of kind of great nostalgia for, for for some sort of great nation status that was um, has been whipped up by certain corners of the press that Margaret Thatcher exploited. Uh, very um, uh, successfully with the Falklands War and so on, um, and um, I, I suppose a you know a, a, a difficulty in accepting England's place in the world in a in, within Europe within the United Kingdom, um, and I think that that difficulty of having a, a form of um, a, 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 of a sort of of a nation that is unable to actually look itself in the mirror because it doesn't have mirrors within which to see itself. I mean, it doesn't have um, its own uh, representative parliamentary chamber. It doesn't have uh, forms of media that speak specifically to it. It doesn't have uh, histories that uh, speak specifically to it because all of its histories are tied up with visions of rule Britannia and empire and and so on. It doesn't really know who it is. And I think that um, just like individuals where no one tells ever kind of, you know, recognises who they actually are, can become um, sort of delusional and, and 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 unhappy, and you know you might say that maybe you can speculate on on Boris Johnson's childhood in this respect. You know how does people end up with so little ability to tell the truth? Uh, well, perhaps people were not um, able to tell them the truth at certain points in their development, their psychological development. But I think equally nations that are are, are, are unable to have honest conversations about themselves with themselves amongst themselves probably do develop certain kinds of pathology. I mean, I, I you know, um, you could say that a certain, in some ways the United States has continues to go through, um, uh, you know, continues to be riven with conflict over the place of, of race within the United States and um, now it suffers the, 
the rage and the violence of a minoritarian project that refuses to accept its own uh, minority status. So, uh, you know, these are these are very, very unhappy, unhappy times. I mean, you know, I think that there have been also I mean, this is what people like uh, Rob Ford at University of Manchester has done a lot of work showing that actually attitudes towards immigration have become a lot more um, tolerant and a lot sort of the, the whole salience of immigration has has fallen a lot since the Brexit vote. So you could say that in that respect, um, you know, that there are there are there are there are sort of effect, side effects of, of these democratic upheavals that that have a certain sort of cathartic and therapeutic effect. So maybe, you know, there are there are there are sort of certain good things happening amongst the kind of the, the, the carnage. I'm going to take that as we conclude. The word good occurred in that sentence. <laughs> so um, as you work as a journalist, as you analyse the world in which we all live, is there a little uh, a little shard of optimism sometimes? I think, um, I think, I suppose that what is, I suppose, necessary at least, um, and I think welcome, is that we understand... Um, how difficult politics and democracy are. I think that if you go back to the sort of, I mean, I've written a lot about the idea of neoliberalism in my, my first book called The Limits of Neoliberalism, um, was a sort of lamented what I call in that book, the, the disenchantment of politics by economics, where you had the kind of golden era of neoliberalism, which, which ran between the sort of late 80s and the, the financial crisis, really, of sort of 20 year period then. And the, the, one of the most famous expressions of this of this era was when um, Alan Greenspan famously said, uh, it doesn't matter who's president of the United States, the world is now governed by market forces, and, and that's all that matters. Um, and that was a kind of an expression of a of a world in which politics really just took a complete backseat to, to economics and markets and globalization. Uh, and now that era is clearly over. Um, I think that, we, that, that that brings a huge amount of challenges it has also allowed lots more voices to enter the fray. Some of those voices are corrupt. Some of those voices are mendacious. But some of those voices are, are not those things. And I think, you know, we hear more about people's lives and the difficulties of people's lives today than we, we did 20 years ago, things that were probably didn't get heard. And this is partly thanks to the Internet. The Internet had, has had positive effects in terms of giving voice to a, a wider range of people uh, parts of society we also hear from parts of society that we uh, that, that, that are difficult to listen to um whether because they're on um where they occupy what position on the political spectrum they occupy or just because of the sheer difficulty of some people's lives and i think that in that respect um you know we we have a in some ways a richer democracy in many ways but also one where coming up with solutions is also a lot harder and i think that right now i think there is a, a sort of an appetite maybe for for some sort of competent policy making, whether it will be radical enough in order to meet some of the, I think, clear social and environmental challenges that we face over the over the over the next um, fifty years, uh, is is not clear, and that's a very daunting prospect. And I think that many people feel very very anxious about that, but for good reason. I think that younger generations uh, have uh, have um, value surveys show that in general they. They are more tolerant. They are more forgiving. They are more um, empathetic than the many older generations. They also suffer deeply with forms of sometimes actually diagnosed anxiety. Um, and I think that the, the extent to which those younger generations are able to overcome that anxiety and actually start to act upon the fact that they have the values that much of the time is what we need uh, is, is, is what going to be one of the big tests. This is not normal. 
The Collapse of Liberal Britain is the book that started this conversation. It's by William Davis. Will Davis, thank you. Thanks, David.